This podcast contains potentially adult language, adult themes, definitely drinking, and possibly sexual context. Listener discretion is advised. Our guest today is S.M. Sterling. Let's talk about what we're drinking. I actually, in honor, found a bottle of Malbec called The Girl and the Dragon. (laughs) Awesome. Very fancy. So this was um, uh, part of the, uh, anyway, I themed it. I, I don't know if it's any good. I haven't actually tried it yet, but I did put it in one of our tumblers, which um, I will send to you. SM. Jen, what are you drinking that's boring and not applicable for this I'm podcast? Drinking, I'm drinking tea. It's a uh, holiday black and it's, I, I like poured it into a, a, a you know, my little Did fancy. You steep it and I steeped it and everything. I made it myself. It was in a bag and I had to make it into tea. Yes. Mm-hmm. Jen's allergic to alcohol, so she's boring. Um, uh, SM, what are you drinking? <laughs> I'm drinking a modest but perfectly drinkable California Merlot. Ooh. It's not the best wine I've ever drunk, but then I was given the best best wine I ever drank. Which was? Which, a Chateau Lafitte Rothschild 1917. Oh, I went wow. to a science fiction convention in uh, Buffalo, and this guy had just gotten a crate of it from his dad. And he gave all the authors <clears throat> a bottle of Chateau Lafitte Rothschild 1917 with dinner, but he didn't tell us what it was, and it had been decanted. So we were all sitting there having a perfectly ordinary upstate New York prime rib dinner with Shadow Lafitte Rothschild in 1917. That was like in the early 90s. It was perfect, not oxidized at all, just like drinking flower petals. Mm. And I priced it when I got back here afterwards, being gross and and crass, and it was $1,500 a bottle. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, I'm glad I didn't know that while I was drinking it because I would have been consumed with guilt or something. Oh my goodness! Oh, by the way, this is actually pretty good. So, girl, girl, and dragon. Okay, but um, it. I had a conversation like this the other day um, about wine because I've the most expensive wine bottle I've ever had was like four hundred and fifty dollars. Mm-hmm. I was not wowed. I it was not like something. I, I don't know what kind of wine drinker you are, but I'm like people who save wine. I love people who are like, I'm going to, I have this to save my wine bottle. I'm like, um, no, like, no, I just drink I, it. Cause I, I like it. Yeah, no, exactly. I like the taste and this $400 bottle was not good, but this 1999 bottle. girl, <laughs> <is very> yeah. <laughs> Fancy. Well, I, I drink wine because I don't like, well, I like beer, but it makes me feel full very rapidly. And distilled liquors activate my superpower. Is that sleeping? What is the superpower? Um, Getting tipsy on unbelievably modest amounts of alcohol. Yes, yes. I know that's a superpower for some. I had a glass of Glenlivet once at a convention, and I put on a kata demonstration in the hall all the way down to the elevators. And then I did the button with my toe. Was it good, though? Yes, it was. It was excellent. All right, good. But it was whiskey, not wine. 
I'm a, I'm a huge whiskey fan too. That's the other thing. I was uh, Jonathan Mayberry is like, we're going to drink whiskey at the next Dragon Con. And I'm like, this is going to be an unfortunate event for one or both of us. I'm not sure which, but <laughs> I don't think either one of us will yield. You go to Dragon Con? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Me too. Every time that they hold it. Well, and I'm going to, hopefully I'll see you there. I've talked to Jody and ever anyway, um, I'm excited that they're doing it in person this year. I'm definitely going to be there. Super excited fan. And, and I now as having done this podcast, I get to go nerd out with all the authors and I am so excited. About that. Well, I'll see you there. Yeah. It's a great con. Lots of, lots of energy. Oh yeah. And costumes. I'm a huge fan of costumes. Okay. Let's talk about books for a minute. For anybody who lives under a rock who doesn't know you, will you talk a little bit about what you write? Um, I write science fiction and fantasy, which is a broad church. I've read a lot of alternate history. I wanted to be a history professor for a while. And then I discovered what you had to do to become a history professor. And I, de I decided that writing fiction was a more reliable income, but uh, I'd always wanted to write. And uh, I was telling people stories and making things up when I was like four and five years old. Was convinced I was Ming the Merciless for a while. Saw the uh, Flash Gordon serials at the local school. This was back in the, oh God, early 60s. It shows my decrepitude. Um, <clears throat> I write a lot of historically grounded science fiction and fantasy. Um, there's an old joke that world building is good occupational therapy for lunatics who think they're God. Um, I love that. And one, of the, one of the drawbacks of world building is that the world tends to take on too much of your own flavor and become too uniform um, and not complex enough. The real world is just like irrefragably real and it doesn't have to be credible fiction has to be credible the real world can just exist and the more you know you know one of the miracles of the american educational system is that it makes history dull because it's it's a collection of the greatest stories in in uh in history um i'm doing a series now uh started out with uh, dies the not dies the fire uh, black chamber uh, a couple of years ago. That's the one that got the Dragon uh, Award for Best Alternate History in 2019. Uh, continued with um, Theater of Spies and Shadows of Annihilation. And the one that's coming out in March, do the obligatory plug. Please. Up up a little bit? Up a little bit? A little, little bit. There we go. How oh, very cool. You know what's funny is oh, I, wow. I have a book box company and we put Black Chamber in our science fiction box. Mm-hmm. It's a good well, it is science fiction. Alternate history is a subgenre of science fiction. Well, yeah, so it's good. Yeah, it's got it's got Teddy Roosevelt in it. He's not the major character. He's a framing character. Yeah, and uh, it's difficult to prevent Teddy Roosevelt from taking over anything he's in. Mm -hmm. And you know, For sure. I think if he was here, he'd say the same thing. <laughs> oh yeah, people remarked on that at the same at at the time. There was um, a comic uh, at the time. Is is persona was a Chicago Irish barkeep named Mr. Dooley. And uh, he, he, uh, he later became a friend of, of uh, Teddy Roosevelt's. Um, they really took to each other, but he came to Teddy Roosevelt's attention because he, he suggested a series of alternate titles for the Rough Riders, which was Teddy's book about the campaign in Cuba. And uh, <clears throat> he called it, I'd call it the doings of a brave man by an eyewitness. 
If it was me, I'd call it Alone in Cuba. <laughs> and a little later on, Teddy was at a, at a reception and this young lady came up to him and said, oh, I've read all your books, Colonel Roosevelt. And uh, he said, oh, that's interesting. Which one did you like best? And she said, Alone in Cuba. <laughs> that was awesome. I would have been like, did you bring it so I can sign it? Yeah. So he used to, he used to tell that story himself. He knew that he, he tended to crowd other people out of a room. So, wow. But he's the only American president, well, he was vice president at the time, who's ever leapt on a 215-pound cougar and stabbed it to death with a Bowie knife. Like you do, Mike. Yeah. That's what I'm well, that's my plan next Sunday. So yeah. He said that was the only thing useful thing he'd done while he was vice president, besides remembering to breathe. He's got some great uh, one-liners. Oh yeah. my goodness. He's also the only American president who rescued a kitten from uh, dogs on the street, picked it up, and then walked around the White House neighborhood for an hour to find it a new home. Oh. Yeah, no cool. vice president would do that now. No, oh, he's president when he did that. Even president, there. Uh, and interesting uh, to see in modern history somebody do that. He's also the only president to lower his own children from a second-story window in the White House on a sheet on a rope made of tied together bed sheets. They were playing a game, a uh, frontier fort, and he really got into the spirit of it. So he was seen lowering them to the ground out the window with this rope made of uh, bed sheets tied together. Oh my goodness. I would imagine the equivalent of secret service if it existed at that time. Oh, it did. Sure. It, it did. And they, yeah, they went made them very unhappy. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I could see that. Okay. What is the first book you ever released? What is the first piece of fiction you ever released? It's called snow brother. Um, 1984 sold it in 83. That was the first book I sold. I sold it to um, uh, Sheila Gilbert. She was at uh, Signet NAL at the time. It was a post-apocalyptic uh, book originally, but she called me and said that they wanted it to be fantasy. So I added an evil shaman in 20,000 words. So it came out as post-apocalyptic fantasy. Uh, it was an early effort. I, was, I wrote it while I was in law school. So it's full of hatred and violence. <laughs> um, but I think it was yeah, it was not bad. It's not bad. And then she left and went to Daw, and I was orphaned, as they call it in the trade. And the the replacement, I waited six months because she'd said they wanted to take the next two books in the series. And I, I called up, called up six months later because I hadn't heard from them. And their replace her replacement said, "Well, we got some reprint rights on a bunch of Arthur C. Clarke books, books, so we're bumping some of our mid list." Maybe next year. So, <laughs> so what did you do? I wrote something else and sold it to somebody else. Okay. Uh, I did, did you uh, ever do the book two and three of that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I did them as collaborations with some uh, people I was in a writer's group with at the time. Uh, and, and he'd say the names of those people, and they're all, like, amazingly famous people. No, um um oh, that's good um shirley meyer and um karen worstein mm. both pretty good writers but you know it's a crapshoot whether you get going in this field a total and absolute crapshoot you hit the right editor on the right day 
But the problem is, you know, that writing is one of those professions like acting that everybody wants to do. Like, um, you know, you go to you go to Hollywood, uh, the Hollywood neighborhood in uh, in L.A., and the waiters are all actually actors. Uh, here in Santa Fe, it's mostly uh, the waiters are mostly artists. You know, I bought a there's a painting in my hallway that I bought from the guy the barista at a coffee shop I like to hang out at. Um, you know, the, you you order veal scallopini, and the waiter tells you about his about her sculptures that she welds together in her backyard. It's it's like that. <laughs> and writing is, is like that in spades. You know, there are millions of people who think that they they can be writers, and two or three percent of them actually finish some piece of fiction and send it in. And well, I had a friend who was a first reader at a publishing house for a while, and she had what she called her funny file. Oh, yeah. Let's see. There was an 800 page epic about a guy who was who's, was born on one of the sea islands off the coast of Georgia uh, after his family was shipwrecked and he was raised by the family goat. I quote, being raised by the family goat had took its toll of him. 800 pages of this. Yes. There was a 600 pager about an undersized paper bag from a factory in Louisville, Kentucky that had self-esteem problems. No, oh, I'm not kidding. God. I know, we know you're not kidding. Seriously. It's just that is that is a horror story from a totally different way of looking at it. Jeez, that's terrible. Um but the my favorite was the organ, which was a Kafkaesque uh um tale about a guy who suddenly turned into a six-foot penis overnight and his wife um rushed him to the county hospital and the head of the of the county hospital found that the organ had a mysterious influence on people's minds and plotted to use it to take over the county medical system not the world just the county medical system and this was done dead seriously. I thought, I thought at first when I was looking at it that it was some sort of riff on Kafka, but this guy was dead serious. Well, if you, if you go to any vanity press or some self-publishing, you find these little delightful things. Uh, we, we have friends that work at vanity presses and stuff, and sometimes they send us the covers the authors are insisting upon. And... Um, the last one she sent us was something like Dave is Jesus or something. And it, it's, a, a, it's a middle-aged gentleman not wearing a shirt, holding his arms out, but like wearing like fluorescent shorts in his living room. And, <laughs> you know, yeah. he has a, a dad bod and it's, they literally had to ask three times. Now you're super sure this is the image you want to use. Yeah, it conveys my book's meaning. And I'm like, cool. Well, that will prevent people from picking it up. So you you do you. You do you. Yeah. My, friend. Like, my God, I was tempted to gouge my eyes out, but it wouldn't help now that the image is in my head. Oh, yeah, and you're welcome. And you're welcome. Um, so what do you think of you were a you've been a writer um since before the whole like self-publishing boom and now the you know all this stuff that has kind of happened and you know talking to like Melinda Snodgrass and things like that it's been interesting to see their views and their takes and Bill on the change of the the book industry what are your thoughts on the change of the book industry yeah well vanity presses as you mentioned used to be the kiss of death um you weren't a serious 
writer unless you've gone through the majors. That's changing rapidly. Um, I think Aragorn was one of the first ones that was uh, self-published and did very well. So nowadays, it's it's a perfectly legitimate path to uh, to publication. Uh, publishing has changed a bit itself. The majors have consolidated and consolidated until there's only about four of them now. Five if you count Bain, and I do. I started out at Bain. Um, As you should. I agree with you on the Bain. Yeah. And uh, um, they've been... Businesses go through a cycle. They start out being run by, by innovators or people who are just like passionately committed to the business. Ford, Edison... You know, people like that, or most publishing companies get started by people like that, by Jim Bain. And then they get taken over by accountants. And when they get taken over by accountants, um, they start going downhill because, you know, not accountants, MBAs, let's say. And MBAs can't do what they think they can do. They think they can manage anything and make a profit off it. And what they generally do is cannibalize the business and then it dies. Publishing is going through a, a surfeit of MBAs right now. They think that somehow they can turn it into a high um, return on capital business by publishing only blockbusters. But the fact of the matter is that no one knows what's going to be a blockbuster. Unless, you know, the author has had 15 blockbusters, then there's Stephen King and you can count on getting good sales. But other than that, you can't because there are, as I said, an infinite number of bad books. A good editor, good first readers even can screen those out, you know, the unreadable stuff, the stuff that you just sit there and giggle helplessly as you read. Um, but there is so much good stuff written and so much good stuff even published, perfectly, you know, respectable stuff. And you can't tell what's going to take the public's fancy. You just can't predict it. But MBAs think they can. One reason I'm publishing this book, Daggers in Darkness, with Ring of Fire Press, which is a small press, just started by Eric Flint, does some good stuff. They've got some good authors, Cecilia Holland, Dave Brin, uh, Dave Weber, me, Dave Drake. Um, they got a lot of Daves. They definitely onboarded in the Dave department. So points. Yeah, well, you know, name, names go through cycles. <laughs> yeah. um, but, um, you know, I've had some New York Times bestseller list books, but none of them have been the first book in a series, mostly fourth, fifth or sixth. But the MBAs don't want to wait. So with this series, it was selling perfectly respectably, but they're not interested in respectable numbers. So they, they, want, they wanted to can the series because it hadn't taken off in the first or second book. Uh, I insisted on the contract for three books, for, among other things, for that reason. Would, I, I, I think it's good what you said there. So we have a small publishing company we started last year. It's called Four Horsemen Publications. And we're series-based because I think people don't realize that authors need to have a volume of workout. You know, every now and then they get a fault in our stars or one of these books that like, ooh, and Oprah likes it and everybody thinks it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. But most of the time it's getting a, a series of workout. And I think that's an important message. And it doesn't have to be a book series so much as also a quantity of books. And who mm -hmm. was it? Heather Graham was saying that. She was saying that there used to be a time when you were signed that you'd be signed for two, three, four book deals, right? And now you're signed for one book and they're like, how good is it doing? Not good enough. We don't want book two. Mm -hmm. And you don't have a shot. These are people who haven't read a book since it was assigned to them. Yeah. They think of books as just a, another business and it's not. It's not. 
Publishing is a wonky industry and it's low return. 5% is the the average. And it's been the average for over a hundred years. But every once in a, you know, and waves of MBAs come in and they think they can turn it into a high return business and they can't. Also, it's, it's not an industry. Publishing is an industry. Writing books is a handicraft. Uh, it's one of the last individual handicraft, industri- handicraft industries. And, you know, you just can't run it like you, you know, even a Perry Rodan book, uh, you know, that, that German series uh, with infinite numbers takes, um, takes a commitment that, um, you know, is, is not the same as turning out a standard product. Um, you know, even L. Ron Hubbard did some good work in his early days. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm doing some intros for a republication of some of his early work, and he was not bad by the standards of the pulps. He wrote one I'm doing called Typewriter in the Sky, mm-hmm. and it's about a guy who is he's, he's this miserable hack author, and he falls into a book, literally. He's, he realizes suddenly he wakes up and he's, he's a character in one of his in a book that would be one that he would write, and he's the villain. <laughs> it's a it's a pirate romance, and he knows what's going to happen to him. And every time he tries to make an overt breakout, this typewriter he can hear it faintly typing up in the sky, and it forces him back into the plot. Oh wow! And it, it, the the book is about how he figures out a way to to win, even though he's the villain. Uh, and the typewriter in the sky is watching him, and it's actually hilarious. It makes me think of Stranger Than Fiction, the the movie where Emma Thompson is narrating. Who's it? It's Will Ferrell's life, mm-hmm. and he can just hear what what he's what has to happen to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but uh, Hubbard came up with it like seventy odd years ago. Yeah, and it's well, there's you know, there's no new plot points. What is it saying? Mediocre writers have influences. Great writers steal. St- yeah. And I steal a lot. <laughs> so was your first book that got published, was that the first book you ever wrote? What was the first thing you wrote? I had a writing class in high school that was actually valuable. Mm-hmm. Um, there were three of us and the teacher, and he gave us a ream of paper. This was back when you did things hard copy. He gave us a ream of paper at the beginning of the year, said, you're all going to write a book over the course of the coming year. We'll meet once a year and, re- uh, well, sorry, once a week and read over what each of you has done, uh, each of you has done, and then you can come to me whenever you run into a problem. And I wrote a book. It was awful. (laughs) Imagine the bastard child of Tolkien and Robert E. Howard um, with a dose of everything from the pulps and a strong Edgar Rice Burroughs influence. But by God, I learned a good deal writing that book. You can't learn to write fiction anyway except by writing fiction. Reading helps. Writers groups can help. I've been in a number of them. Um, getting good critique from an, uh, from an editor helps, although you don't get that as often these days because they're overworked and underpaid, and almost all of them are women. Why is that not a surprising coincidence? But anyway. Um, <laughs> you're, you're talking to somebody who does editing and stuff. That's why Jen is just <laughs> smiling. She's yeah. an editor as well. And yeah. yeah. And it's all the piecemeal. Only, the only male editor I've ever had is Jim Bain. And we had a terrible fight. But uh, that's why I left Bain Books. I may be doing some more stuff for them in the future. It depends on what they think of some proposals. But um, what, Was it about the Oxford comma? 
no, no. It was about my character. Gotcha. My, my lead character in Island in the Sea of Time was black and female and gay and in the Coast Guard. And for some reason, this just pushed Jim's buttons. He wanted mm-hmm. me to make her into a white guy from Montana. And I, I told him, I've already got a white guy from Montana in this book. And he said, yeah, but he's the villain. And we fought about it. And eventually we just came to a parting of the ways. Gotcha. Jim was a very smart guy. And when he didn't have his buttons pushed, he had an intuitive sense for books in this genre that was matchless. But when his buttons were pushed, things could get awkward. Mm. How do you and the book's it? now in its 30th, 31st printing. So I was right and he was wrong. And I get to sing the <laughs> I was right song. There it is. I, have, you, have you had a lot of that through your time in um, as an author that people have pushed back on characters? Because I always, I think that's one of the things that is advantageous if you go the self-publishing route or whatever, is that generally you pick the editor differently and you can not have your entire vision necessarily um, trampled by their opinion. Well... You can always shift the book, particularly if it's the first in a series. I shifted, I got Sheila Gilbert at um, Penguin. Mm -hmm. And actually, I got two offers on Island in the Sea of Time after I pulled it from Bain and paid back the advance. Um, I got one from uh, Sheila Gilbert, not Sheila Gilbert, sorry. Oh, my God, I shouldn't be drinking like this. My memory is blanking. Um, That's okay. My memory's like that before I start drinking. I just blame the wine. It's good. Anyway. There was a new author at a new editor at Penguin, and I got an offer from Tor. Tor was going to do an original hardcover. The new author, um, how can I blank on this? I've known her for years. Oh, God. Um, and my agent, who is a god among agents, um, Russ Galen, oh, God, I remembered his name, thank God, um, <laughs> said, if you send it to Tor, it will disappear in the ruck because Tor is a very big company. But this line at Penguin is just starting. Um, The editor is young and hungry. She'll push it. And it was the best piece of advance I ever, a piece of advice I ever got. The advances were roughly similar. So I went, I went with her at, uh, at at Penguin. And that really started my career because that was the first really successful book I had. I'd I'd done a lot of collaborations with uh, Jim and with, at Bain. And, you know, collaborations are not bad. There's one way to get your name mentioned and you, you learn. I got outlines from Dave Drake when I was doing collaborations with him that were forty to 50,000 words long. Now, I'm a pantser, you know, the seat of my <laughs> pants author. But these were like every scene was outlined. And it, Dave does that for himself, too. That's the way he works. And it was awesome. And it was actually strangely liberating. I didn't have to think about the plot. I didn't have to waste 20,000 words in a, going in a direction that turns out that it wasn't, uh, it wasn't doable. I just wrote the book and concentrated on things like world building and characters and, and describing scenes. And it was actually very liberating. And I learned a lot about structuring books from Dave. Structure is like, you know, nine-tenths of the iceberg is underwater, but it's absolutely essential for a book. You can tell when a book's got a bad structure and no amount of good paragraph by paragraph writing will make up for it oh oh my god i agree with that 100 percent. yes also as a pantser i'm curious because i'm i'm lucky that i write in horror 
is my genre and chiclet erotica. So I can get away with not having so much world building. Mm -hmm. uh, I, that may be by design. Who knows? But you are doing sci-fi and fantasy. There is world building. How do you balance that with your pantserness? Well, uh, as I said, my my um, I, had, I did a dual major when I was an undergrad, uh, history and English, English lit. And uh, I discovered that I just love, well, I discovered a long time before that, actually, that I love doing historical research. You know, I showed you my library. Here, it me... is amazing. Oh, my yeah. gosh. There's, you're going to be so jealous, Jim, when he does this. I know. <sighs> like, so jealous. This is yeah. like... That's awesome. I spent six thousand years dollars a year on books, and most of them are nonfiction history, in particular history, anthropology, archaeology, that sort of stuff. So I love doing research, and I love detail in the world building in books I read. I have to keep this under control because otherwise, you know, they they'll be reading my notes. So you know, developing a way of getting the information across without too much in the way of info dumping. Is, um, is a skill you have to learn. But, you know, when I was writing my first book, at one point I had a map drawn and it was set in North America, post-apocalyptic North America, admittedly. And I had this map that was the entire living room of the apartment I was in at the time, which was a slum apartment, classic starving artist stuff. <laughs> and um, I had two hookers living below me and they and their clients got into very, very loud fights anyway. Oh, there was a hole in the kitchen floor, too. Um, I had this map of the area of the, the action of the story was taking place in, which was basically Minnesota. And it was covered the entire living room area. I made it by taping eight by eight and a half by 11 sheets together. And I was crawling over it, writing details on the long distance trade in flax. And um, I said to myself, Steve, enough with the research. Write the book. It's time. Yeah, it's time. So I, I just basically wrote it. I did it on, uh, on a manual typewriter. This was back when cut and paste meant cut and paste. Um, did, did you have carbon paper? No, no, because I, I made too many corrections. Later on, with my first advance, I got an electronic typewriter that did one line. Had a line. Yeah. <laughs> I, spent, I blew the entire advance on that. You know, at the time I was doing pickup jobs, uh, I picked tobacco for a summer. I actually slept in a migrant laborer's barracks. That was an experience. Um, I was a bouncer for two nights. It wasn't the violence that put me off. It was the getting puked on. Because um, when, when you grab a belligerent drunk around the waist and drag them out, guess what happens? Yeah, that denim jacket was never the same. Uh, but I blew the entire advance on this Olivetti one-line electronic typewriter. And it actually helped. And it had a whiteout uh, cartridge that you could put in. And I got really fast at whipping the, whipping the whiteout cartridge in. I was a, proud of my manual skill on that. But, um, yeah, I just learned to control my, my world-building uh, obsessions. Actually, history is a good way, to, good way to do that. Sometimes people are familiar with the history. Like, uh, that's why a lot of alternate histories deal with World War II or the American Civil War. But those have been done to death. But uh, history is good for that because, you know, the real world hangs together, even if you're mutilating and mutating it better than uh, anything you can actually come up with. 
a good fictional universe should be as ample for writing stories in as the real universe. And we haven't run out of room to write stories in the real universe. Although if you're doing historical or alternate historical, you can, you can do that if you're not careful. Patrick O'Brien wrote a series, the Aubrey Maturin series, they're called great stuff. But he did too many time skips before he realized how popular it was going to get. And he ran out of Napoleonic war. So 1812 and 1813 happened three or four times, if you, if you read carefully. He, had, he just had to do that. So I took that to heart when I read the series, and I, um, I decided to leave ample room in any series I did for sequels if the book took off. You can do that inconspicuously. Give your protagonists or your villains or both children, for example. Um, you know, just mention there should be a sense when you walk into a scene in a book that the universe does not consist of the room in which the scene is taking place. It should have implications that, uh, that stretch out indefinitely. So you've got, you know, and that means you've got room to go to. Also, if a, if a book feels like nothing exists but the characters and what they're doing, it gets claustrophobic in my way of thinking. Mm-hmm. Oh, I agree. Yeah. And we have to take a quick break. We will be right back with Drinking With Authors. Oh, thank God, my aging bladder thanks. This is the voice of Drinking With Authors. You are at our commercial break, and our commercial is, hey, do you want to be a guest on our show? Or do you have a question for one of the guests on our show? Or do you have a brilliant drink recipe that we've never heard of? That would have to stump us. But you could reach us at drinkingwithauthors at gmail.com or on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. You can direct message or even just leave a comment on one of our posts. We would absolutely love to hear from you. And we're back from that criminal commercial break. Criminal break? It could have been criminal. Yes, I prefer to call it a euphemism break. Oh, euphemism break. I like that. We're back from our euphemism break here at Drinking With Authors. So, um, as you're going through this, and you you talked before we even got on about when you were able to go full-time. So, when did you go... I love you. Yeah, you actually, I would like you to share the story of what you did with your tie when you decided to go full-time writing. Oh, I was I was working an office job as a temp at the time, um, legal clerking temp, and uh, having a law degree did help me at least a little bit. Um, I took my tie off and cut it up with a pair of scissors, and I danced through the office, singing "Singing in the Rain," actually, and uh, throwing pieces of the tie at people. And I have not worn ties except on formal occasions since. Thank God, inventions so- of the devil. You are a lawyer? No, I'm a recovering lawyer. Um, (laughs) I I had my dorsal fin surgically removed. I was actually called to the bar. Um, I was, this was in Canada. I'm Canadian by background. And uh, I did my three years at law school and then a year of articling and then six months at the bar admission course. Articling is like being an apprentice, articling clerk, it's called. It's a British, British hangover in Canada. I articled with two guys. One was carted away, screaming that things were cl- uh, climbing up his legs. And we found many bottles half empty around the office after that. So I, I switched my articles, which isn't generally done, to a firm I thought must be respectable because they were at 390 Bay Street, which is just across from Toronto City Hall. Oh, wow. And then 
Uh, I later discovered that there were four disbarment proceedings against the guy I was articling with at the same time. And uh, well, that changes he, things. He and his wife were were partners, and um, he had three sets of books: one for himself, one for the tax people, and one for his wife's relatives. Um, she tried to kill me at one point. Um, threw a heavy stapler at my head. But then she'd once called a judge an old fool to his, to his face in open court. So she didn't really do many court appearances. Um, yeah, uh, he wasn't mobbed up. I'll say that about him. His name was Constantine. Um, but some of his friends were. And okay, I wait, asked, is this an actual fiction story? Is this real no, life? No, no, this, because... is, this, this is real life. <laughs> So I asked one of his one of his mobbed up friends once what it was like being a lawyer for the mob, and he said, "It's well, it's interesting, and the interesting work and the money's good, but you can't quit." <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, Constantine was a was a piece of work. Um, for example, he was the lawyer for an immigrant family, Portuguese immigrants. They started a little grocery business, lived over the shop, strive and succeed, the usual thing, and it burned down. And several bleach cans full of gasoline were found out back afterwards. And they didn't get any money since there was suspicion of arson. But Constantine, who held the mortgage on the property, did collect. And they came into the office. They'd rushed out in their pajamas. And the, the head of the family went down on his knees, literally in front of Constantine, and grabbed him by the pant legs and begged him to help them because they'd lost everything they'd spent years uh, getting together. And Constantine put his foot on the guy's chest and pushed him over backwards. You could not put this in a book. Oh, you could put that in a book. That is that is because the people would say that's melodrama, that's unrealistic. It's reality. Oh, and is is I was the second longest serving employee until his last secretary quit just before I got out. I got him to sign my articles early. And she uh took my paycheck to cash it and disappeared. <laughs> wow. Talk about stranger than fiction. Did you ever oh, yes. turn him into a character? Is he a villain somewhere? You couldn't do it. He was just he was just larger than life. Like he got he got the the uh, Ontario um, provincial legislature called in a special session once. Uh, he was he lawyers in Canada have to do pro bono work. It's assigned on pro rata basis by the law associations of the provinces or at least it was while I was involved in this process. And Constantine liked to defend child molesters and rapists because he said it was a challenge. So there was this guy who assaulted a retarded cleaning lady in front of three witnesses. The witnesses were nuns. Constantine got him off. He dug up an 1832 provincial statute saying that witness testimony wasn't admissible unless it had been directly observed and some of the penumbra of case law on the thing said that looking through glass didn't constitute direct observation, which in the 1830s might have been, you know, uh, defensible because glass was often streaky and bubbly in there. So he dug this statute up, which no one had heard of for like a century and used it and got the guy off. Um, and they, they called the, the provincial legislature into special session to repeal this, this statute after Constantine got him off. Uh, you know, I knew right then that I was getting lots of material that would be valuable in my career as a writer later on, but I just couldn't stand it any longer. So I got him to sign my articles and let me go. You know, and, 
it's interesting. I work in HR as my day job right now still, though. Mm-hmm. And I, I often have to tell people what is right is not always what is correct. And justice has a lot of formalities that go with it. Mm-hmm. And you don't necessarily get justice. You get whatever the written law is and who's clever enough to figure out what mm-hmm. the correct loophole is because people um, get obviously wrongly convicted all the time, but people also get off on these ridiculous technicalities and the judge knows they're guilty of it. Like you have three nuns as testimony. The judge is sitting there going, okay, but the law oh, yeah. and the rules say X, Y, and Z. So I have no choice, but to do this action in it. And it, Mm, anyway, I could go down the down. letter yeah. of the law versus the spirit of the law. Yeah, and he had me. Constantine was a slum landlord, among other things. Uh, he had me collecting rents for him at one point. So I was collecting. I went into the building. I touched the banister as I walked up the stairs. The banister fell off. Oh, there were roaches scuttling over the walls, stains the whole nine yards. Uh, I knock on the door, and the door opens, and I can't see anyone. And I look down. And there's a guy who's three foot six inches tall, or maybe a little more. And I say, L'argent, pour la maison. He talks to to me in French, so I I reply in French. And I could barely understand his French. I I did some research later, and I found out he was speaking Pied Noir North African French. And um, I said, you know, I'm collecting the rent. And he he starts pointing at the stains on the walls and, and the brooches and all that sort of thing and screaming at me. And then... He starts trying to punch me. So I put my hand on his forehead and he backs me down the stairs and out the door. Um, and he, he was swinging right at, at groin level, you know, as far as I was concerned. So I can say that I'm one of the few people who can say with, uh, with complete truthfulness that he has been assaulted by a homicidal Pierre Noir dwarf. Um, you know. And th- did that wind up in a story? Uh, yeah, actually, <laughs> I think I used that at one point. Then there was the time he sent me to serve a, a, a writ on a guy. He was being told to keep away from his wife, divorce case. It's a standard, you know, restraining order. And I said, well, why aren't you getting the process server to do this? And he said, the process server won't go near this guy. And I, said, well, and I said, well, what's with this guy? And he says, well, he's out on bail. And I said, what's, what's the charge? And he said, aggravated assault on a police officer. And it turned out it was the head of Satan's Choice, who are the uh, who were at the time the drug dealing motorcycle outlaw gang in the area. So I had to go and knock on this guy's door and present him with a writ and tell him to leave his wife alone. He opened the door and I was looking at his nipples, which I could see because he was wearing nothing but a leather jacket with chains. He had pants on too; they were leather too, and the, this beard down to his belly button. And I gave him the spiel, you know, this says you can't come within 100 yards of your wife. And then I did a heel and toe and went away. And luckily, it was early in the morning. And I could tell this person was not a morning person. But Constantine was so cheap, he hadn't given me taxi fare. So I had to take the bus back. So I was waiting at the end of the street at the bus stop. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay. You I said, some... stranger than fiction. Oh, my God. Yes. Um, you mentioned villains. Who is your favorite villain in a book? Ah, hmm. well, that's hard to say. If you want sheer enjoyment, Rudolf Rauschenstiel from uh, from the Ruritania book. What was it? Anthony Hope, um, Prisoner of Zenda. Um, that's a really good one. Um, but 
if I was saying, you know, like subtle treatment of villains, I would, uh, in the, in the genre, I would quote Harry Turtledove. Harry Turtledove does really good villains. You know, you get inside their heads and they actually are villains. I mean, Adolf Hitler is a speaking part in one of his books, uh, no, several of his books, but you can see their motivations. You know, very few people are villains in their own minds. Um, you know, they all have reasons for what they do. They may be very bad reasons, but they're still reasons. You know, no one just you know, like decides to get down off the stagecoach and kick a dog because it's his role. So that that uh, that helps. Um, some of the villains in Harry Turtledove's books are just like splendidly done, and I would uh, I would recommend that uh, recommend them wholeheartedly. Of course, I'm I'm not entirely objective here. Harry and I are friends that have been for many years. No, more than 20 years now. God, I'm Harry dead. is supposed to be on our show here shortly. So that'll oh, be good. interesting to do. Good. Good. I must put in a good time. word for us if you enjoyed at the end. Because I heard he's a recluse. That was what I was told. You want him on the show? Yes. He's a recluse. I'm like, well, okay, cool. Harry and I were talking about this at, a, at Dragon Con, actually, about four years ago. Uh, he was there with, with uh, Laura Turtledove. And who's written some excellent stuff herself. We can't get it published. It's, it's a sin. But anyway, and uh, Jan, and <laughs> I was saying, well, you know, I'm a bit of a recluse. And if it weren't for Jan, I'd never talk to anybody. And Harry and Laura were just nodding and pointing at each other, you know? So we're, I, th I think we're both on the, uh, the autism spectrum, mildly, very mildly, but we both are. You know, we're both obsessives about detail. We're not good at uh, personal communication. Um, I'm reasonably good at it now, but it's a learned skill. I had to like study it like anthropology. So, I like that, that, that you said, I have to study it like anthropology, by the <laughs> way, that, that may be one of my favorite things you've said so far. <laughs> anthropology is awesome. My office mate, when, when I'm on campus as an anthropologist, I've learned so many things and all I do is tease her and tell her about dinosaurs, which is what our advising department tells our students. So, yeah. Um, I had a question for you. When so you're generally an introvert, how are you doing with COVID? Has that affected you? Your writing, your schedule? Well, it hasn't. I used to write a lot in coffee shops to get away from my cat, who is an uh, affection whore. Um, but uh, <laughs> they all are. Yeah, oh, I mean, my cat is not an affection whore. She's an asshole. Oh, taps, yeah. Taps you, on the, taps you on the forearm, saying, "I'd like some more treats," and then I'd like an hour's cuddle, please. Um, <laughs> But, uh, you know, she makes her, her wishes known. You know? um, I used to write more in, in coffee shops and restaurants. Uh, that gives you the advantage of having people around you, but you don't actually have to talk to them much. Mm -hmm. um, I always put uh, Joe's Diner and uh, the coffee shop I'm, uh, I'm currently working at in my dedications because they tolerate me muttering and making faces off in the corner. Um, Apart from that, it hasn't made all that much difference to me, but it has brought home to me that even I, a recluse, uh, a hermit, um, you know, a grumpy old man living in a cave on top of a mountain, actually had more social interaction than I thought. And, you know, it, you, you miss it when, you, when it's gone, even if it doesn't take up all that much of your time. Mm -hmm. You said you went to conventions. You talked about Dragon Con, love Dragon Con, advocate of Dragon Con. I'm an advocate of most conventions. Um, how frequently did you go to conventions before COVID shut us all down and locked us in a house? Yes, before this bad science fiction movie took over our lives. Um, 
Yeah, I went to about four a year. I went to our local convention in Albuquerque. Um, um, Bubonicon, it's called. It's, it's mascot. Its mascot is a rat because. Um, oh, that's rodents, perfect. Rodents in New Mexico are have endemic bubonic plague. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went to Bubonicon and um, World Fantasy, if possible, because I met uh, Jan, my wife, at um, a World Fantasy, and we became. I courted her at several world fantasies and I proposed at the world fantasy in Memphis, Tennessee. And uh, she accepted. And then we did our honeymoon by going to a world fantasy. So world (laughs) fantasy has a deep place in my heart. I would think so. Yeah. And uh, then we'd go to others, particularly if they invited me, although um, just to show you how socially inept I was, I am. I once completely forgot that I was going to be guest of honor at a convention. And they called me up on the Friday and he said, oh, my God, I forgot. Oh, uh, wow. That, you, you got you to made it. Or, that, is, did, that is awesome. I, did, I, did, did you make it on time? No, because it was in Tennessee and I was in New Mexico. Okay. It was a hideously embarrassing since then, I've always like warned people who want me to do things that they have to keep reminding me. When yeah. I was a student, I'd sometimes leave my parents waiting for two hours to pick me up because I'd fallen into a book. Yeah, I can totally. So I'm a reasonably tolerable human being now, but as a teenager and a young adult, I was a total asshole. So you talked about um, buying six thousand dollars worth of books a year. How many? How many? How fast do you read? That's a lot of books. Depends whether I'm reading or rereading. I go much slower when I'm rereading, but if I'm reading like intensely and I'm interested in a book, I can get through one hundred and fifty thousand words in like two or three hours. Wow! Um, it's a little faster for fiction than nonfiction. So um, what are you reading right now? Yeah. Well, I'm reading about six different things right now. I oh just, my got goodness. A, just got a yeah. book delivered today. It's a history of uh, London as the imperial metropolis of 1900. Cool. And let me see. I can look up here what books I'm reading. Uh, I'm reading my own books, of course. You know, it's self-abuse. What can you say? Um, and let's see. Just... Do you reread your books before you write the next in a series? Yes, I do. You know, I write the books I'd like to read. And by God, I actually um, like them. Let's see. Okay. I've just read uh, something. I'm in the process of reading Stars Collide by H.P. Monroe, which is a romance. Um, I read The Paper Daughters of Chinatown, which is a historical novel about Donald Inda Cameron and Tian Fu Wu who were two women who wrote it, who uh, ran a shelter for abused women in uh, San Francisco from the 1890s through the 1930s. Really remarkable people. Rescue, the, the Chinese domestic slavery was still a thing there then. Uh, and there was a lot of uh, uh, human trafficking. And they, they rescued thousands. Tianwen Fu, uh, Fu Wu was herself rescued by Cameron. Uh, she had burn scars on her, fore- on, her, on her arms and stuff, and she was only 10 years old when she was rescued. Wow. 
She later went on to become one of the first uh, Chinese-born women in America to get a college degree and worked with Cameron for like 40 years at, the, uh, at their shelter. Uh, let's see. I just read a novel by uh, Natalie Walshots called Hench. It's written from the viewpoint of a supervillain's henchwoman. Um, Love it. Oh, my God. That sounds awesome. I've been rereading the Flashman books. I've been rereading a history called The Transformation of the World, a global history of the 19th century. Uh, Terrible Fate, Ethnic Cleansing and the Making of Modern Europe. The Princeton Economic History of the Western World, specifically one about the Roman Empire. Cambridge History of Capitalism. Uh, Something by um, uh, Ronan. Uh, Over the Woodward Wall, a book on Alma Tadema, who was a Victorian painter, a book called Empire and Globalization, Networks of People, Goods, and Capital in the British World, circa 1850 to 1914. Um, Let's see, New Approaches to African History, Power and Landscape in Atlantic West Africa, Archaeological Perspectives, New Oxford World History. I reread the Great War series by Henry Turtledove over the past couple of weeks. And a bunch of other stuff like that. That's a reasonably representative sample. So, you know, some really light reading. <laughs> some of it. Well, to me, this is light reading. I just enjoy reading. You know? I, I think that is amazing. What? So how many books total have you published? About 40. I think. I've been writing about a book a year since ni- 18, sorry, 1984. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> As a matter of fact, he's invented time travel, just in case anyone is wondering. <laughs> so how do you feel about audiobooks? Do you listen to audiobooks or are you a paper person or ebooks? I'm by preference, I'd be a paper. I do a lot of ebooks these days because, well, you saw my office. And you know, books don't stop taking up room and I hate getting rid of them. As a matter of fact, I think I still have the first book I ever read. Uh, it's here somewhere. Uh, I can't lay my hands on it right now. It's called Naughty Red Lion Beware. It's a classic British children's fantasy book about heraldic shield animals that come alive at night. That's cool. And uh, I read it, well, I had it read to me dozens of times when I was a little kid. I insisted on having this book read to me over and over. I memorized it and learned how to read by putting my memory of the words together with with the uh, stuff on the page. So I didn't learn the alphabet. I learned to read it like Chinese ideographs. I taught myself to read when I was about five years old that way. Um, And uh, uh, I've been reading ever since, and I hate getting rid of books. I can hardly bear to do it if I read them with any enjoyment at all. So the, the house groans under the weight of the printed matter. I mean, this is my office, but there are bookshelves in every room in this house. And there are books piled up in the garage in boxes. So I've, been, I've taken to doing ebooks because they just take up so much less room. Also, of course, I can carry thousands of books around with me when I go out, which isn't the problem this year. But, well, let's put it this way. I had 50 pounds of books in my backpack when I tripped, fell, and broke my hand a couple of years ago. This is scar here. I tell people it's a knife fight, but actually it was reconstructive surgery on the hand. Fortunately, I fell right outside our local clinic. So I was lying there with my finger out like this thinking in a minute or two, that's really going to hurt. And all I had to do was crawl into the uh, clinic and they started to work on me. 
But you know, it's a lot lighter to carry around. Definitely. No, I used to read books surreptitiously when I was playing cricket at uh, a school I went to when I was a teenager. I read uh, Warlord of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs, and I had it tucked in my cap. I was fielding, and I'd read the book, and the ball would go right past me, and there'd be screams of Sterling! <laughs> that is That's epic. Awesome. Oh, my goodness. Um, when you're... So you reread your books before you go. How long is your longest series right now? 15 books. You don't reread all of those books before you start number 16. Oh, God, no. Okay. Um, that was the Dies the Fire series. It's actually longer than that if you count the lead-in three books from the Island of the Ti Sea of Time series, which was three. And then I did a spinoff. Um, the Island of the Sea of Times is time travel. The Island of Nantucket gets sent back to the Bronze Age together with the Coast Guard uh, ship Eagle, which is a, a sailing uh, three-masted uh, bark. And uh, I had fun with that. Um, I honeymooned on Nantucket. My, uh, well, apart from the world fantasy that year, Jan and I went there for a, a week early in spring before the tourist season. And uh, a couple of years later, we go there back there every spring we can. Same hotel. And uh, we were walking on the beach. Nantucket has some gorgeous beaches. We were walking. It was night. The moon was on the uh, sea. I saw the lights of a ship going by and I thought, you know, Nantucket feels isolated, but it really isn't. I wonder what it would take to make Nantucket isolated. And then we turned around and went back to the room and I spent a couple of hours scribbling notes as the stuff for Island of the Sea of Time came to me. Um, then Dies the Fire is a modern day, well, 1998 modern day spinoff of that. And I did 15 books in that. That started out as um, science fiction loosely defined and then verged into fantasy, which is what I had in mind. Wow. Okay. I want to ask you about your fans. So you do four conventions a year. Do you put yourself at a booth so fans can come up and meet you and get you to sign things? Um, usually there's a signing at the conventions I go to. There is a Dragon Con. And uh, I just sort of, I go to panels. I love doing panels. I don't particularly like sitting in on, you know, sitting in a room and watching other people do panels, but I love doing it myself. And I tend to talk too much. The only person I've ever met who's, who's worse that way is David Brin. Um, but I enjoy I will concur with that. Say, David's been on our, our podcast. He did most of the podcast himself. He's amazing, <laughs> but he did most of the podcast himself. Yes, we, we've, had, we've had several fights, but I like him and I like his work. Um, he's a good writer. You know, he's, he's absolutely, but I, I just, you know, go around the con and make myself available to the fans and they can talk to me. Usually they're very interesting people. Science fiction fans are some of the most interesting people around and you get unbelievable amounts of recondite facts out of them, um, which I love. Now that's something. So you, you talked a little bit about this. Obviously you do a lot of research, which is awesome. And one of the things I have I discovered, <laughs> I love that you said that. One of the things that I feel like um, one of, if anybody asked me what my favorite book of all time is, it's Ender's Game. That's my favorite book of all time. I couldn't put that book down. And I love the premise, hate what they did with the movie, but that's a different subject. But one of the things that I think is interesting about a lot of sci-fi fans growing up being a nerd before being a nerd was cool is sci-fi fans 
are so educated most of the time and know stuff that you mm -hmm. can, you have to fake it very well when you're discussing things and not try to pretend like you're an expert unless you do enough research to be an expert because they will call you on your shit. If you talk about some sort of scientific theory that has any basis in real life, they'll be like, no, that's not how that works. Like it's gotten worse quest? since the internet too, yeah. Oh my gosh. I've embarrassed myself a couple of times that way. Oh, have you? <laughs> yes, I, I, I tried to tell Liz Bork about, you know, she's the reviewer for Locus. Mm -hmm. She's also a, a PhD in history. I tried to tell her about some historical stuff once. God, that was embarrassing. I made a complete asshole of myself. But uh, we've, we've, now become, you know. we've become reasonably friendly since she's done some very perceptive reviews of my stuff and of other people's. I've gotten into a number of series because I've read her reviews in Locus or on her website. She's really good. Uh, and, you know, just really perceptive. And she writes fair reviews of books who, which contain things she doesn't like. And there aren't many reviewers who can do that. Reviewers who can see a book, see things they don't like, yet still make a fair and objective judgment of the actual craft of the writing. Mm -hmm. And that's a rare quality, and she has it. And also, she put me in my place, and I needed it. Because, <laughs> um, you know, I'm like, I'm like many people who are like polymaths and read a lot. I think I, I, I know a great deal, but I think I know more than I do. And it's good to run up against someone who has superior expertise in something I thought I knew about which is, you know, like it's chastening experience, but it's good for you. You mentioned um, having an ex, you mentioned having a friend that's wife is a Wiccan and utilize oh, brother, her. Brother. Her brother is a Wiccan. Sorry, brother. Okay. Your salmon. Yes. Um, and Well, I've been drinking most of my bottle of wine. It's <laughs> fine. It's fine. I'm good. Um, and uh, I'm stationary. So that's all that matters, by the way. Make sure you're drinking at home and not out in public. Okay. Um, but you mentioned that do you have other experts that you rely upon like that you reach out to for a certain subject matter oh god yes i've got engineers uh physicists um economists it's it's great um, so, and surprising it's surprising how many people want to cooperate with an author like when i did the island in the sea of time book i walked around nantucket with a with a little pocket recorder this was in 1997 and I just asked people about their lives, what they did, their businesses, all that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And they were, I said I was writing a book set on Nantucket. I wanted to get realistic detail. And uh, they talked, and I got all sorts of useful stuff that was just invaluable. And particularly back in those days before the Internet made research easy, although you've got to be careful about what you read. Um, and I, I got scads of really really interesting and useful useful stuff i tuckerized some of the people i interviewed but i always asked first of course mm -hmm. like there's a machine shop in nantucket i wouldn't have thought it because it's a tourist destination but there's a machine shop with like machine tools that could make more machine tools and um, i talked to some of the like farmers weavers uh, artisans all sorts of things it was really educational but, uh, you know, I was writing the Dies of the Fire series. One of the protagonists is a Wicca. Now, I'd read about, I read a fair number of books on Wicca. And, you know, I'd gotten some idea of it, that. But, you know, lived experience is always 
different from what you can get from doing pure research. Um, you know, so if you're going to, if you're going to be writing about someone who has a different lived experience than you do, it's really a good idea to talk to a lot of people who have more in common with that character than you do. Um, you know, I mean, heck, I use female characters more than half the time, and I talk to a lot of women. And I, I usually run something by them, um, run the stuff by them first. Jan's been an enormous help that way. So is Kier, Kier Salmon. Um, my writing groups have mostly been, have been more than half female. And that's always been a, a, an enormous uh, uh, help to me. And if I'm writing uh, something, you know, various different types of character, I generally try to get someone closer to the character than I am to look at it first and make sure I'm not making obvious stupid mistakes. Like subcultures, I have, they have their own jargons, uh, their own in-jokes, you know, the, the, that sort of thing. And it's, it feels more authentic if you can get that. And that's part of the research for writing. And I, I find it interesting. You know, I don't see how anyone can be bored in this universe um, because there is just so much to learn. A thousand years would not be enough just for this planet. Oh my gosh, that's so true. It's, you know, it's, I think it's amazing that you say that because I think um, with the advent of self publishing and all this, you can have an idea about writing a book about a, any sort of sort of subculture that you have and things like that. But mm -hmm. if you, if you don't know anything, I have friends that are Wiccan, I have friends that are Druids, and I have friends that worship Nordic, Nordic mythology. Yeah, I love that they throw some of the best fucking parties on the planet. Like just throwing that out there. Like we're having a Yuletide ceremony. There is so much mead. Let's go do this. Let's. Like I got into that through Diana Paxson, actually. Oh, really? Who uh, was as a true, yeah. And uh, she gave me some really good advice for some of the books in the Dies of the Fire series, the later ones. And uh, I had a, a, a sort of as a true neo-Viking settlement in northern Maine. And uh, she gave me some really good advice on that. And she knew some people there. So I Tuckerized her. She actually appears as a, as a CRS in, the, uh, in several of those books. I ran those by her, by her. I ran those passages by her, of course, uh, first to see that, uh, see that I was getting stuff right. And she gave me some really good advice that saved me from, from some embarrassing uh, screw-ups. And, and, and I think that's important because I think people have an idea or even if you quote unquote, like what you said, if you research it, but actually talking to people, it's kind of like the actual doing a job. You could read about a farmer who farms corn, mm -hmm. but unless you go out and witness it and watch it and the famine and the, the, you know, all the things and the bugs and the weird stuff that can happen when you're farming corn or even the government coming in and going, we we're going to pay you to not do this. Like people don't realize like that kind of stuff happens mm -hmm. when you're farming certain products. They're like, you know what? We're actually going to pay you to plow your crops under. Right. <laughs> and yeah. unless you go do that activity or witness it and not necessarily do it, because if I went out there, no farmer would want me to do shit on their farm. But um I think it's important that when you're, when you're talking about somebody's voice, you get the voice right. And it's terrible when you read something and you're like, this person has no idea what they're talking about. Ever read a newspaper article on something that you really know about? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, and when you're dealing with periods when you can't get living testimony, um, reading things like collections of letters can be really illuminating 
you know, not just about like historical details, about how the people at the time saw things, and also stuff like the different voices people talk in. Like I've read a number of 18th century letters, and it's interesting to take an author like like Sheridan or Pope, and you read their letters, and they they talk in a different language than what they write in. Um, the grammar is different. The spellings are different. Even when English became reasonably standardized in the late 18th century, um, there was a strong gap between the formal written language that, that authors used and what people actually spoke, even, you know, like highly educated and literate people spoke to each other. Um, and that's, that's illuminating and really, like, really, really, really valuable. And, you know, you get, it just gets you into interesting stuff, like the, the rise of standardized uh, versions of English. Mm-hmm. Um, before then, most people spoke regional dialect, and that was, like, not a class thing. In English, in England, from the early 19th century or late 18th on, dialect has been very much a class thing. Regional dialects were lower class. Before then, that wasn't the case. Um, you know, but then gradually, um, the London, the... London upper class dialect became standard over the yeah. whole over the whole country. Sorry, thanks, you were Jeffrey. Gonna say I was just going to say thanks, Jeffrey Chaucer, but because he did a lot for standardizing, just because his book was popular before the printing press with Canterbury Tales. My background's all in linguistics, so I just got so excited. Um, linguistics, but, yeah. nerd. <laughs> that was awesome. Okay, yeah. we actually have to wrap up this episode so that we can go into literary briefs. I would like one piece of advice you would like to give authors out there. You mean beginners? Anybody. I'm not going to even say beginners because the thing I've realized is people who think they're experienced authors should still be learning shit. So what advice would you give authors? Uh, Read a lot. And once you've been writing for a while, you read differently. I think the same thing happens to critics. Um, you know, you start you start seeing the bones. Uh, I can I can rarely see a movie these days where I don't know what's going to happen because I see the the plot structures. Um, you've got to be able to step back and read what you've written as if you were somebody else. I've seen a lot of people who have you know like every talent imaginable, but cannot step back and read their own stuff without superimposing the ideal version in their head on what's actually in the page. You have to be able to distance yourself from your own writing uh, and read it as if you were coming to it fresh and didn't know all the stuff that you know and haven't gone through the whole process. Um, That's why writers groups can be very valuable, although they can also be a terrible trap. Um, So, you know, be able to distance yourself from your own stuff would be the advice that I'd be able to, that I'd give to anybody who's either doing this or thinking of doing it. I love that. Okay. So for your fans or soon to be fans, what is the best way to find you and your stuff? Don't give your home address. I always have to say (laughs) that because somebody actually did that on one of these podcasts. They're like, well, I live at, and we had to edit that out because I was like, maybe not show show up in people's homes. So what is the best way for people? I've had that happen. Yeah, I have no doubt. That's the crazy part. So um, Facebook, uh, 
how do you social media? Do you social media? Yes, I do. Um, I try to avoid Twitter because Twitter is a dopamine receptor addictive rage machine and it exists to make smart people stupid. Um, <laughs> apart from that, I like it. Um, Facebook. Yeah, I'm on Facebook. There's the SM Sterling Appreciation Society, which is like an open group, but you got to do a few things before you can get in. I, I frequent that. A number of other groups, the alternate history groups, science fiction groups. Uh, I'm on Facebook myself, and I'm willing to talk to people as long as they're not complete assholes. And believe me, having been one myself, I can tell. <laughs> um, and uh, I have a listserv. Uh, oh, God. Yeah, I have a moderated listserv that I uh, that I intervene in fairly frequently. And as I said, there's the Facebook group, SM Sterling Appreciation Society. Kira runs it. And she provides an invaluable function filtering out the too strange for even us uh, people. <laughs> That's awesome. So. Oh, my goodness. You have been thoroughly amazing. Thank you so much for being on this podcast with us. You are awesome and funny. You are, and I'm I'm not going to even talk about the level of jealousy I have for your office space right now. Because Jed Why too I is bought like, this house. It, this was originally a two-car garage. And it had been converted to um, a, uh, sort of a, a study by the original owners of the house. And I looked, it came in and my, Jan says that I went when I saw the space and I knew that I had to have it. That is awesome. So thank you for being on this podcast. This has been Drinking with Authors. I've been Erica Wicks. Jay and Paquette. And we will see you next time.